There once was a college student that was taking his final exam, and he started to hand it in with the rest of the students when the professor said, Behold, before you turn in your exam, I have a form for you to sign, and on the form, I want you to sign your name and confirm to me that you have not asked for any outside assistance in taking this final exam. So a lot of the students were signing their name and turning in the form, but one student was hesitant. He wasn't quite sure if he could sign the form or not. And so in the interest of full disclosure, he went to the professor and said, I just want you to know that before this exam and even during this exam, I was praying to God and asking him to help me. So the professor said, well, let me take a look at your test. So the student gave him the exam and the professor looked over all the answers and he handed back the form and the test back to the student and he said, you can sign the form with a clear conscience. God did not answer your prayer for help. (laughs) Since I've started here at Given Baptist Church, I've noticed that prayer or praying is on a lot of our church family's hearts and minds. Praying for the future praying for rain at the beginning of the season, praying for healing, praying for kids and teachers going back to school, praying for loved ones, praying for help on a test this week, praying for a good crop yield this year, praying for our nation, and even praying for the Cornhuskers because they desperately need it right now. My hope and my prayer, because pastors pray, believe it or not, is that by exploring some texts and scripture over the next few weeks, it'll be helpful in perhaps invigorating or reinvigorating our prayer lives. And so we start in James. James, the brother of Jesus, an eventual leader in the early church in Jerusalem, makes an outrageous claim at the very end of his general epistle. He has the audacity Perhaps the nerve even to suggest that Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, was an ordinary human being like you and I. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Maybe you've heard of Elijah before in Sunday school. Elijah's a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. As far as prophets are concerned, he's such a big deal that when Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and starts wandering around Galilee, the crowds mistake Jesus for Elijah. Even centuries after his time on earth, he was still pretty famous. And even if you know a sliver of what Elijah accomplished in his day, just a story or two, you'd be as astounded at James's claim as I am. Elijah was the guy who went to the evil king Ahab and said, it's not going to rain unless I say so. 1 Kings chapter 17 says, neither rain or dew shall fall. The original Hebrew literally means to say, no moisture at all will be felt throughout the kingdom of Israel until Elijah gives the word. The first thing Elijah does right out of the gate is confront the most powerful man in the world and tell him that his nation is going to suffer without moisture unless he says so. Elijah was the guy who goes and hides by a stream after God told him to because King Ahab probably didn't like what he heard from him. And God tells Elijah that ravens will bring him food twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening to sustain him. 
Elijah camps by the stream so long, in fact, that the Bible tells us that the stream dried up because his proclamation to King Ahab actually came true. Elijah was the guy who visits a widow and her son. The widow is concerned about not being able to make ends meet and provide food on the table. Elijah tells her not to fear because her jars of flour and oil, useful for baking but also for selling, would never run out. And this came true. As the more and the more the widow and her son poured out the jars of flour and oil, it became evident that they were actually bottomless. Elijah was the guy who, after hearing of a widow's son passing away, he was able to resurrect him. He goes into the upper room where the boy's corpse is lying and cries out to God to restore the life of the boy. Then he stretches himself on top of the deceased boy, not once, but three times, and then the Lord resurrects the widow's son. It's a really bizarre story, but part of Elijah's life hasn't been bizarre up to this point. Elijah was the guy who built an altar on the mountain called Mount Carmel, and he called down fire from heaven to consume it. Perhaps you know this story. King Ahab assembles his prophets of the false god Baal to duel Elijah the prophet of the one true God in the presence of all the people of Israel. After the prophets of Baal had exhausted themselves all day trying to persuade Baal to ignite their sacrifice, all Elijah had to do was pray to God once and immediately fire from heaven and rain down upon that altar. Elijah was the guy who was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Perhaps you know that story too. Elijah didn't die. Instead, heavenly horsemen escorted him personally into glory. He's walking along one day with his protege, Elisha, and the next thing Elisha knows is that his mentor is just whisked away. I doubt any of us will exit this world in such a manner. But I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I have lived a life quite like Elijah did. When James says that Elijah was an ordinary guy like me, I have a hard time believing that. When I put my life side by side with Elijah's, when I compare my story to his, I don't feel like Elijah. Do you? Elijah lived, it seems, a phenomenal life, going from one miraculous occurrence to the next, and when I look back on my life, my everyday existence, it pales in comparison. My life's pretty average. Nothing too out of the ordinary happening. Nothing compared in my life to even remotely a week in Elijah's shoes. I don't know about you, but ravens didn't bring me lunch this week. My jars in my kitchen didn't infinitely refill themselves. Fire from heaven didn't fall down at some point this week because the Chiefs won last Sunday. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like Elijah. Do you? But James says, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. A better translation is the NRSV, which reads, Elijah was a human being like us. He was a person. Elijah shared the same human nature as every human being ever born. To say it more like the original Greek, it says it, Elijah experienced, suffered, and felt the same human experiences that all human beings ever experience, warts and all. 
And so perhaps now the absurdity of James's comment becomes clearer. How could someone who prayed like Elijah prayed do miraculous things day after day and have an extraordinary relationship with God still just be an ordinary human being like you and I? We all feel this tension of not having the same kind of relationship with God that someone like Elijah did, and perhaps that's James's point. James is wanting us to realize that we can be like Elijah since Elijah was just like us. We just have to want to be. Our instinct is to immediately rationalize away the spectacular life of someone like Elijah. The only reasonable explanation for Elijah's life story and relationship with God is that he is some sort of superhuman, whereas obviously we're not. But James says that Elijah wasn't Superman, he was Clark Kent. Elijah experienced an extraordinary relationship with God, not because Elijah was somehow superhuman. He didn't have a superpower of super spirituality. In fact, Elijah merely experienced the kind of relationship with God that God desires all of us to have with him. There once was a man who was given a special gift, an all-expense-paid voyage on a cruise ship. The man had never been on a cruise before, so he was excited to take his first voyage, especially since it was all paid for. And throughout the week on the cruise, one of the crew members noticed that the man frequently ate the free crackers and juice provided on the deck. In fact, he had never seen anyone eat as many crackers and juice as this man did. And curious as to the reason why, the crew member could not help himself, but he went to speak to the man as he was disembarking. Sir, how did you enjoy the cruise? It was spectacular, the man replied. I have never experienced anything like this before. Very good, sir, the crew member said. And then he continued, I noticed that you really liked the crackers and juice on the deck, and I was just wondering why. Well, then, well the man replied, looking back, I, I saw all the lavish meals that were being offered all week long, but I didn't have any money, and since the crackers and juice were free, I let them sustain me during the entire trip. The crew member replied, someone didn't give you all the information. When the price of your ticket was paid, it not only included getting on the boat and going everywhere the boat goes, but it also included everything on the boat as well. Your food was covered in the price of the ticket. All too often, we make the Christian life out to be surviving on crackers and juice when a banquet feast at the table of the Lord lies before us. We settle for something less than what God had already paid for, whether because it's what we're told or circumstances of life have pushed us to that point. James is wanting to make us realize that we're often stuck believing that having a relationship with God only constitutes consuming crackers and juice. However, James tells us that that doesn't have to be the case because Elijah didn't think that way. We look with envy at someone like Elijah chowing down at the banquet hall. However, James says we can actually join him in there because he was just like us. Elijah was an ordinary human being like you and I. He lived and breathed like any typical person does. He experienced joys in this life like any normal person does, but he also had rough patches in his life just like you and I do. Don't mistakenly think that it's always sunshine and rainbows for someone like Elijah. You remember that Mount Carmel experience 
where God showed up in a spectacular way. God proved his existence to everyone present that day in a fiery way, a significant spiritual triumph as far as I'm concerned, but not necessarily so for Elijah. Immediately after this episode, King Ahab's wife Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head for what happened on that mountain, and the Bible says that Elijah was afraid. Have you ever been scared? Elijah was. Elijah flees as a fugitive into the wilderness. He's on the run, sinks low enough that he actually asks God to take his life away. And the Bible says that Elijah had to take a nap and then he awoke and an angel had prepared for him a meal. I just think Elijah was a bit tired and a bit hangry. Have you ever been angry? Tired? A little bit of both? Elijah was. God finds Elijah in a cave, isolated from the rest of the world, and a frustrated Elijah informs God that he feels totally alone. Elijah tells him that no one else cares about the things of God except for him. He has no friends or allies. Have you ever felt alone? Elijah did. James says that Elijah was a human being like us, and that he includes the weaknesses of being human. Elijah was an ordinary person through and through, and the only thing that separates us from him is that he did not settle for the cracker and juice experience with God. He believed there was more, he knew there was more, and he decided to feast at the food of the banquet hall of God during his cruise through this life, even in the lowest of moments. So what's keeping us from doing the same? James seems to believe there isn't anything stopping us. So what does it take to be like Elijah? Because I don't know about you, but I would like to have a relationship with God, much like Elijah, if James says it's possible. How do we cross the gap between where we feel like we're at and starting to feel like Elijah? I think it's having a prayer life like his. James says Elijah had a nature like ours and prayed fervently. This and is very important. James wants us to emphasize that Elijah was a person of prayer. A prayer warrior, some might say, like all good Baptists should be. James says Elijah was dedicated to a life of fervent prayer. Other translations say earnestly. English translators are trying to capture the desperation behind Elijah praying. Elijah was a typical human being who did not, who did not half-heartedly pray. The way of describing Elijah's prayer life is also the same way to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. If you were to flip over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus was in agony and he prayed more earnestly. Jesus was praying so fervently that Dr. Luke tells us that great drops of blood were seeping out of Jesus' face that night. To be like Elijah is not to pray harder. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to try harder in praying like some sort of works righteousness. That's not what's behind Elijah's prayer life. To have a prayer life like Elijah is to start listening for God's will and then praying for it. Look back at Elijah's prayer again. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. No one would ever pray a prayer like that consistently for years. No one would do that unless they wanted to lose friends and make a lot of enemies. This is an unpopular prayer. 
The only way Elijah would pray a prayer like this if this was someone else's agenda. Elijah was willing to pray a prayer he likely did not quite fully understand. Elijah was not praying for what his neighbors wanted him to pray. Elijah likely couldn't see the bigger picture as to God, how God could possibly do anything good with no rain and dew, but Elijah was listening and praying for God, what God wanted, which at that time was a drought and a famine. First King says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. At that moment in history to prove that Baal was not God, God needed to remind Israel of the one true God and it required a drought. God needed to do something drastic to wake the children of Israel up to the fact that they were worshiping false gods and even after suffering through a severe drought, the people still didn't listen. Elijah first listened for God's will and what was on God's heart and then he began to pray. Too often we begin with what's on our hearts, what we want to get off of our chest before listening for what is on God's heart. We do this because everyone prays for their own will, but very, 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 very few people pray for someone else's will. Take Jesus, for instance, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may you take this cup from me. Jesus was praying for his will, but wait just a second, keep reading. He says, yet not my will be done, but yours. The difference between our prayer life and Elijah's is that Elijah prayed for God's will. And this came from listening for God's will. We have a hard time listening to each other, let alone God. Listening for God takes effort and time. It's not something you can accomplish in 15 minutes. It's a process of discernment. It's long moments of wrestling with your own thoughts to be sure who's speaking or is God speaking in your own head. It's countless moments of jotting something down in a notebook or somewhere that you believe you heard from God from somewhere. You chew on whatever you've got. You bring it to others in a community of faith like ours where we can help you discern what God may be trying to say to you. Listening for God's will may take a considerable amount of time and energy. So are you listening for God's will? Before refrigerators... People used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls and no windows and a tightly fitted door. And in the winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut and hauled into the ice house and covered with straw and sawdust for insulation. And often this ice was able to last throughout the whole summer. One day, a man lost a valuable watch while working in the ice house. And he searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but he, but he couldn't find it. And his fellow workers also looked, and their efforts, too, proved futile. But then a small boy heard what was happening. He heard that they couldn't find the watch, and so during the noon lunch hour, the little boy slipped into the room, and then he suddenly emerged with the watch. Amazed, the men asked how he was able to find it. The little boy said, I closed the door lay down in the sawdust and kept very still. Then soon I heard the ticking of the watch. Often the question is not whether God is speaking, but whether we are still and quiet enough to hear. Often the question is not whether God is speaking, but whether we're willing to wait long enough to hear him. 
Often it is our posture towards prayer that dictates the efficacy of our prayer lives. What will it take for you to get into a position to hear and listen for God's will? What does that look like for you to listen for God's will in your life? Are you putting yourself in a position to hear God, not just even right now, but all the time? For Elijah, he had to listen intently for God and not confuse God for a powerful wind or an earthquake or a fire. Elijah knew to listen and find God's presence in a gentle whisper, like Bible says. How is God speaking to you today? To listen for God more effectively, maybe it means you just need to give him more time. We often get impatient in our prayer lives when listening for God because we have been conditioned in our society to have things instantaneously, but asking God is not the same thing as asking Google. Maybe it means you need to remove some distractions. The phone in your pocket, your Netflix subscription, the talking heads on your preferred news network or podcast. Maybe it's something different, maybe a different distracting noise. You just need to limit to hear God. Maybe it means you need to stop monopolizing the conversation in your prayers and be silent for God to have room to speak. This isn't to say that you will always remain silent in your prayers to God. God wants to hear what you want to say, but we should not make our prayer lives completely one-sided. If your prayer life was a transcript, what percentage of your prayer life is you speaking and God speaking? To have a prayer life like Elijah is a willingness to take risks. I believe the prayer life of someone like Elijah isn't safe. Elijah's prayer life was filled with risk. Listening for God's will and praying for God's will was not always free from danger, hurt, or uncertainty. There is risk involved. Think of the risk in Elijah's prayer. He is taking a major risk in praying for no rain or dew to appear. Elijah's prayer was essentially a death wish for his family, himself, and his loved ones. Elijah had no clue God would supply him DoorDash ravens to provide him takeout for the three and a half year period that he was praying. Elijah's prayer also put him in the crosshairs of dangerous people. We've already recognized the risk of upsetting King Ahab and Queen Jezebel because they've murdered prophets for much less. And praying for no rain or dew, Elijah was risking his life in more ways than one, and that's likely just even scratching the surface. Elijah's prayer life was one of immense risk, but also of immense faith. Elijah heard from God and what God wanted to do in the world, and Elijah trusted God, knew what God was doing. Elijah put his faith in God and prayed for God's will to be done, regardless if Elijah could see the bigger picture. Elijah then had faith God would provide and protect him if he prayed for his will. Faith in God's care is the unspoken aspect undergirding all of Elijah's prayer. There once was a man named Jack who was out jogging one evening. And as he passed the cliff, he got a little too close to the edge and suddenly found himself falling. And on the way down, he managed to grab hold of a branch, nearly yanking it out of the cliff. And when he had caught his breath, he realized what a terrible predicament he was in. He couldn't get himself up and letting go certainly seemed to be a poor option. And so he began to scream, hello, can anyone hear me? And in a moment, a voice returned, Jack Can you hear me? 
Yes, yes, I can hear you, Jack replied. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? But yes, but, but, but who are you and where are you? The voice replied, I am the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord, you mean God? One and the same, said God. Jack pleaded, God, I promise that if you help me out, I'll, I'll stop sinning, I'll be a really good person and serve you all the rest of my life. Easy, 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 easy on the promises there, Jack, God replied. First, let's just get you down and then we can discuss those things. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do, okay? All right, said God, let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me, let go. There was a long pause as Jack thought of the offer. In a moment, however, Jack let, he let out another yell saying, hello, hello, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> what will it take for you to let go? What will it take for you to let go in your prayers? Praying like Elijah means you're handing control over to God. Regarding your situation, regarding your worries, regarding your fears, regarding the lives of your spouse, children, family members, friends, loved ones, regarding thoughts about COVID, regarding your concerns about the future of this nation, regarding everything. To pray like Elijah is to declare trust in God's providence over everything. If we want a prayer life like Elijah that listens and prays for God's will, we have to anticipate it being risky. If it's not, double check that you're praying God's will. We may be out of our comfort zone if we pray like Elijah did. We won't see the end of the story if we pray like he did, but we pray anyway because God's will will provide for us in that sense. Notice that Elijah's prayer is not peppered with advice. It's a temptation for all of us when it comes to our prayers with God. We become sort of like actuaries trying to mitigate or cushion our prayer lives by offering God solutions to our prayers for him like he doesn't know what's going on. We believe that we're helping God out. We tell him, that's what we tell ourselves, but Elijah didn't feel compelled by such enticements. Elijah did not try to soften the risk. Elijah trusted God and had faith in him. This isn't to say that Elijah's faith was not tested and that Elijah was free from heartache. He clearly was. But Elijah prayed anyway for God's will to be done no matter the cost. Elijah did not settle for the complimentary crackers and juice. Elijah knew he was welcome to the feast at the Lord's table. That's what separates us from being like Elijah. He was an ordinary human being like you and I, not some superhuman, so why don't we join him? To be like someone tasting the savory menu at the Lord's table is to pray like someone at that table. It first requires listening for God and praying fervently for his will. It necessitates putting faith in God's will and trusting him in the face, faith, face of fearful odds. And so I invite us all to pray like Elijah.